Good afternoon. How's everyone doing? That's good. Some of us. For some reason, I just can't get this picture out of my mind about Dong um, being able to to uh, to write up lyrics. But the only reason, for some reason, I don't know, for some reason in my head, all I can think of is um, when someone writes their own lyrics and, and able to sing it. I only think of someone rapping, and so I'm just picturing Dong like it's sort of you know with a flat cap, you know, like you know just just with a gold chain or something, and just rapping up front for us. It's be great. I'm, I'm happy to take this, stand off the stage and give it give it to Dong, but. We'll just, uh, that won't embarrass him too much. Maybe, maybe a dinner. Is it a rapping that you're doing? No, it's not, right? No, okay. <laughs> All right. All right. Shattered, mate. <laughs> Anyways, let's, um, let's, we're going to get stuck into God's Word. Uh, we're going to be focusing on Psalm 87. So before we do that, let me pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you so much that um, we get the privilege of diving into your word. Um, Lord, tonight's passage is meaty. It's heavy. It's, um, it's challenging, Lord. I just want to ask that you might be speaking to us, that you might help us as we um, dive into this word, that we would uh, not just know more about you, uh, but to really know what's on your heart and how our lives should change as a result. So, Lord, I want to pray this in your Son's most precious and glorious name. Amen. Well, this is a picture of a North African Medina, kind of like a marketplace, where things are it's just like little alleyways and it's intertwined into other little alleyways. Um, it's sort of these cultural spaces with things that are trinkets being sold, you know, tiles with mosaics on them, pots and pans that are, are covered in gold. That kind of beautiful sort of alleyway, quaint coffee shops, little tea shops. Um, so last year, my wife and my, my daughter, um, uh, in December, we actually were over in North Africa walking some of these uh, streets. And, and walking along, you kind of, you, I guess they're expecting tourists and expecting people from uh, different places all around the world. And as, I, as, as we're walking down the street, uh, a shop owner sees me and, and sees us. And his first response was, oh, ni hao. And I was like, I'm not sure if I'm supposed to be offended. So I just said, uh, all, the first thing that came out of my mouth was, oh, good day, mate. And he goes, oh, you speak uh, English. And I'm like, oh, yeah, I, I, I speak English. I'm from Australia. And he's like, he's like, oh, impossible, impossible. You are Chinese. And I was like, no, 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 I, I'm Australian. In reality, I am Australian. I was born here. I was raised here. I have... I have some association with China. I mean, my parents are from China, but I am Australian. I've got a birth certificate that says I am Australian. I, I, my passport says I am Australian. I've got the accent. I am Australian. I can speak ochre if I wanted to. Struth, mate. Struth, fair income. If you don't know what struth is, struth is it is the truth. It just shortened. I mean, we do that. All Australians do that. Did you know that? Yeah, yeah. Okay, some of you didn't know that you're not Australian. It's great. <laughs> the thing is this. I think so often we go through life trying to prove our identity. We go through life trying to fit in, to belong. And we go through life trying to find that belonging. See, usually our identity and belonging is tied to our circumstances. 
So maybe it's our family origins or work or spirituality. Maybe it's our travel. Maybe it's hobbies, our upbringing, whether you're a Westie or you're a Southwestie or somewhere else or another country altogether, whatever you want to identify as. I think the reason it's so important for us is that our belonging and our identity is so tied to our security. Because I think that's what we're all seeking. See, the Journal of Psychology in Australia would say that every single person is seeking belonging. That it's not just a, des- it's not just a desire or want. It's actually a need. It's a need to belong. And it's, the research suggests that for those that don't feel like they belong, they don't really have an identity, there's an increase in depression and anxiety and even a sort of lifespan. C.S. Lewis, we looked at him a bit last week. He's the writer of the Narnia series, and this is what he says. He says, I believe that in all people's lives, at certain periods... So I think he's trying to say that at certain periods we, we feel this a lot more. But, and in many people's lives, at all periods between infancy and extreme old age, one of the most dominant elements is the desire to be inside the local ring. And the terror, the terror of being left outside. Do you hear what he's saying? He's saying, that I think the issue is for us is that I think for, is that if we don't find belonging, when we don't feel like we fit in, when we don't feel like we're accepted, or when we feel outside of that local ring, that inner circle, that place of belonging, we are dissatisfied. I mean, some of us here might say, well, actually, you know, Kerry, I'm... I'm I'm pretty okay at the moment. My identity is firm and strong. You see, I think when this usually happens to us, when we, when we start to think more about who we are and where we come from, all those type of questions, there comes generally in our changes of circumstance. Maybe it's a transitional phase of life. Maybe it's heading from school to TAFE to uni or to work or maybe you're in between work. Or when you lose someone, when when that family member or partner or friend um, passes away. Or when you feel like life isn't measuring up to your your expectations. We get stuck in those if-only moments. I mean, if only I, I had friends that understood me. If only I could find respect from my parents. If only I had that new car or that new house or that new job or that partner or family, then I would have made it. If only people knew how hard I worked, they would know that I'm a good person, that I'm hardworking. If only maybe I was more involved in church, then I'll be accepted, I'll be recognized, not just by other people, but also by God. There's this endless if only. I think the thing is this, uh, circumstances change. Regardless of what family you're, you're part of, there is brokenness. Friend networks don't stay the same, they change over time. Hobbies fade. Our interests sort of wane. 
What will satisfy our endless search for identity, belonging, and security? And can everyone have it? Who can get it? And if we have it, what do we do with it? So what will satisfy? See, last week, Dom, he he took us to the resurrection of Jesus. And that is an eternal hope, one that is secure, one that is unshakable. And I want to say that the, the psalm that we read today in Psalm 87 points to the same, same thing. What will end that endless search for identity, belonging, and security? Well, I think it's found here. So if you want to read it, if you've got your Bible, there's Psalm 87. If you don't have a Bible, feel free to stick up your hand. I think there's some Bibles in the back that you can grab. But Psalm 87. It's really meaty, by the way, so we'll just kind of get stuck into it. Verse 1. He has founded his city on the holy mountain. The Lord loves the gates of Zion more than any other dwelling of Jacob. Glorious things are said of you, city of God. Do you get it? What is the psalmist talking about? He's not talking about hope. He's not talking about identity. He's not talking about belonging or security, Carrie. What is he talking about? Why are you saying that these verses point to the fact that we find belonging, security, and identity there? Well, let me try to explain it like this. Last year, about um, in December, the same time we went to North Africa, uh, we went to India and a whole bunch of other places, uh, we were kind of, my family, um, so my wife and my daughter, we were on this monumental trip trying to figure out where God might have us long term. And we're actually headed to North Africa now um, in September. Um, But in that time, uh, in those two months, we spent about 72 hours on a plane and um, my almost two-year-old daughter, when the cart would kind of come in uh, behind the curtains on the plane, she, her first words when that cart came in was this, juice, snacks, and she knew that the towel was to wipe her face. I mean, we spent so much time there that she, that's, she just knew it, like this, it was just rote. But it was unsettling. It was so unsettling being in so many different places, not really having a place where we just were. I mean, this week, Heidi, my wife, she was just telling me how amazing it is to actually wake up every morning and be in the same house, to feel comfortable. I don't have to worry about what people think about me when I go on the street. I can speak the same language. We don't have to figure out what's going on at every single turn, you know, that I can just be. I mean, it's home. The thing is, this Sydney here has been my home, and it's part of my identity, and it's part of my belonging, and part of my security. See, what God is talking about here in these verses is the place that He has established, where He dwells, where He delights in. I mean, that first verse, um, that holy mountain image, and the second verse where it talks about the gates of Zion. And the city of God. What he's talking about is this picture of Jerusalem. The ancient Israelites, uh, when they read this, are picturing Jerusalem. God's holy city where God will dwell. 
where God will be, where God's people could go and they could be with God and worship God. And see, the story of the Bible is this, the restoration of God's people to God himself and into a land that God has promised. Jerusalem. See, that picture city on the holy mountain is Jerusalem. I mean, this happened in the Old Testament in Exodus where the Israelites were in slavery in Egypt and God took them out. His promise to them was this, that I will take you to a place. And that place is where you will find security. And then when the Israelites disobeyed God, they, they followed their own way, they, they actually got taken away by Babylon into another land. They were sent out into exile. And when they're in exile, God still said to them that I will take you to Jerusalem where you The promise was that I will take you to a place that will be secure forever. And then even in Revelation, in the the last book of the Bible, where it promises not just for the Israelites, but even for us. This is what he says in Revelation 21. Because this is a promise for us as well. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy... So the idea of sea is this idea of chaos, of disorder. It's not saying that there is no beaches currently in in heaven. Uh, It's actually just saying that um, it's a place where it's free from the tumultuous sort of life and sort of of chaotic um, existence. And this is what he says. Look with me. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard aloud from the throne saying, Look, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. This is the promise for us, what it will look like. He'll wipe every tear from their eyes. There'll be no more death. There'll be no more mourning. There'll be no more crying. There'll be no more pain. Oh, how I want that for the old order has passed away. Why should we find identity, belonging and security there in this holy city? Because that is the place where God is. He is the one that establishes it. And it's the place where the emptiness and the dissatisfaction and the longing in our life will be met. It's home. And God wants that to be the place where you find rest, where He dwells. It's a fix for the brokenness that we see in the world. Blaise Pascal, um, just in summary of his, his famous quote, he was a 17th century mathematician and philosopher, and he said this. 
He said that we try and fill we, we, we try and fill our lives with what is temporary, but it doesn't satisfy. It doesn't satisfy our craving or our helplessness. Because the only thing that will satisfy is what? Is what is infinite, lasting, and eternal. My challenge and question to us today is this. What things in your life take up your energy and your time and your thoughts? What are those things that take you away from God and take you away from what is eternal? What are your if-onlys? And what are you going to do about it? What are you going to do about it? Maybe it's firstly coming to God in repentance for it. To stop making those things ultimate. It doesn't mean you don't enjoy it. It doesn't mean that, that you can't sort of savor it and enjoy what, what you have. But it shouldn't be where you place your joy. Maybe it's scheduling time to spend with God in prayer, knowing that he answers in reading, not just for more knowledge, but to know what you read that day affects and shapes what you do that day, that week. To be specific with the application of what God says. You see, I think one of the biggest problems we do a lot as a church and as I talk to people, as I've journeyed with people, as I read God's word with people, is I think we are really, really good at reading. We're really good at dissecting a passage. But you know, you know the one thing I think we fail at doing? More often than not? We don't apply it to our life. We don't let the Word sit in us and change what we do it just becomes more knowledge and it puffs up. How does what is eternal change your perspective today? Because if we truly believe that we belong to God, that life with God now and into eternity is the best possible life, because I tell you, it is, then living God's way will be the most satisfying, the most joyful, and the most fulfilling thing. And living God's way is what we will pursue. Belonging to God is where we will find our identity and our security. I mean, so how does what you read at CG on Wednesday affect what you do on Thursday? How does it shape how you relate to God? How you speak to your friend when you don't agree? When your, your boss at work who gets on your nerves? Your parents who nag you all the time? How does it influence the way you raise your children? Or you relate to your grandchildren? How does it affect how you plan for your retirement? Because if we truly belong to God and our identity belongs with Him and in His place then it should be reflected in how we live.
But I think often we just forget because that's not where it's, God is not most satisfying because something else is. I think for me, though, one of the questions that plagues me a lot, especially when I hear something like that or I've been challenged this week by that, is that I'm just constantly fighting, and I'm just, that I'm constantly fighting. I mean, I'm just, I think I feel and that, that in those times I, I have doubts, especially when I'm unsure of my standing bef- before God. I, I've, I've chased other things. You know, I've made other things ultimate in my life. I mean, how do I even know God wants me to be in this city? How do I even know that I belong there? I mean, Kerry, you're saying my identity should be wrapped up there. That I should find my security there. Then how do I even know I belong? Well, I think this passage points to that as well. If you read with me verse 4, you've got to see how crazy this is. Because this is crazy. It's monumentally crazy. Psalm 87, um, um, verse 4 to 6. I'll record Rahab and Babylon among those who acknowledge me. What? Philistia too and Tyre along with Cush. Are you serious? And I will say this one was born there. Indeed of Zion it will be said this one and that one were born in her. And the Most High himself will establish her. The Lord will write in the registers of the people, This one was born in Zion. And as they make music, they will sing, All my fountains are in you. My spring of life is in you. Are you serious? These people? Those people can be accepted by God? Kind of confusing, isn't it? You're kind of like, oh, I don't really get what that means. Why, like, why are these names so confusing? Why are they? Well, let me let me let me explain it. Um, and maybe this will help. Whenever I picture an Asian grandmother, this is the picture I have in my mind. Because uh, this is not my grandmother, by the way. Uh, this is actually um, just one I found off the internet. Um, but she kind of looks like my grandmother. So, so, you know, traditional outfit, big smile, white hair. So the first time I went over to Heidi's parents' place to have dinner, Henna and Neville over there, um, I was already nervous. I was kind of not exactly sure what to expect, what to do. Uh, and so I walk up to the door and I knock. Um, you know, nobody comes to the door for a little bit, and then, then someone does come to the door. And the first person behind the door is Heidi's grandmother. And she kind of looked like this. Traditional outfit. And, and the first thought that came in my mind when I saw her was, man, Heidi's mum is really old. <laughs> She was a grandmother, Heidi's grandmother after all, but I didn't know that at the time. And the second thought that went through my mind was, man, she's really traditional. I don't know, like, if I'm prepared enough for this, you know? Like, I don't know, like, if, if I'm... 
it's okay, like, I want to say, I want to do, you know, like, like what, what if she, and then, and then what I didn't expect, and the most unexpected thing happened, it was the first few, the first word that came out of her mouth was just so shocking to me that I just stuck in my mind, because the first thing she said to me was, bonjour, and I, I had no category for this. My category was my grandmother. Like, I just did, it didn't make any sense. Like, I thought it was a joke. Like, I thought maybe she was messing with me, trying to, like, test me or something. Like, how would I respond? So I'm, I don't know what I said. I might have said good day, mate, or something like that. I don't know. I responded somehow. And well, if you don't know, I mean, obviously, um, Heidi's family um, is from Mauritius. Her grandmother was born in Mauritius. Um, and so it was a previously a French colony. So it's not that far-fetched that she, she said bonjour. But um, she didn't speak English. So my mind was blown. I mean, but the thing is that I just never category for her. So what's the category for those that are born in God's kingdom? In his heavenly Jerusalem? where we should find our rest. Whose names are written in Zion? I mean, if you're an Israelite person who this was written to originally, you would look at this list and just be shocked. It would be categorically seem wrong, almost impossible, be confusing and ridiculous. Because this list right here is a list of all the enemies of Israel. And people that are just so distant and far off. Those people, they can be accepted by God? So Rahab, you know, right here, it's not the picture of um, Rahab, that, the woman from Jericho. Uh, this word is actually um, more, the, it's, a, it's, a, it's a sort of um, a, a term to put down the Egyptians. Um, to sort of mention that they were arrogant people. The people that God, they were hot-headed and they were proud and they, they went against God. Those people? From there, like that, are accepted by God? Babylon, a picture of a nation of slaughter and war and greed and wealth and intolerance and death. I mean, Nebuchadnezzar, one of the kings, he, he, his favorite saying was this, that what is written in the history books, he shall be put to death. Can you imagine one of our politicians here saying that that is his favorite slogan? He will be put to death. Well, that was the signature of Babylon. Think modern day Iraq. ISIS, the perpetrators of the bombings in Sri Lanka. These people? Those people? From that group? Like that, they, they can be accepted by God? Philistia, those people were far away, distant people, not just by land, but also by culture. Those people maybe in the jungles of the Amazon or, or Berbers from the deepest, darkest Africa. There are people who are from there like that that are accepted by God. Tyre, sophisticated, urban people who worshipped idols, but also instruments of war, maybe like the Japanese 60, 70 years ago. There are people from there like that that are accepted by God? Are you serious? 
Ethiopia, pointing to not just the African people, but it was kind of this image of those that were so far away, culturally, ethnically diverse, different, worshipping their own perception of who God is, not the one true God. There are people like that from there, from those distant lands that are accepted by God, that can be accepted by God? I mean, this is a picture of those that are outside, unlikely to be accepted by God according to the Jewish tradition. People that are rebellious, that have rejected God, that dishonor God, that live life according to their own measures, their own spirit, seeking after stuff, finding hope in themselves. People that find meaning and purpose in what they do. How they're perceived by others rather than by God. Those people? They can be accepted? Yes. Those people, like that, can be accepted by God. What's the criteria then? If they are accepted and they can be accepted, what is the criteria? Well, that's what verse 4 tells us. I'll record Rahab and Babylon among those who, what? Acknowledge me. Among those who acknowledge me. This word acknowledge, it's, it's more than just knowing about. This is kind of this deep and intertwined, I, I know you. I have faith in you. I trust you. That's what this, this, this word acknowledge means in the, in the Hebrew. See, the reminder for us is that God sent his son, Jesus, for people like us. That God can accept us, even in our rejection of him, in our darkest and filthiest state, and says to us that if we trust in him, and if we acknowledge him, that we will find everlasting identity, and belonging, and security. It's not about belonging to a church. It's not about being called a Christian. It's not being well put together. It's not, even, it's not about being middle class, living a good life. It's not about being good. It's not about how much we contribute to society or to church or how much we invest in ministry. The criteria is this, that we find our identity only in Christ and have faith in him. Egypt, Babylon, Philistia, Tyre, Ethiopia, Cush. They didn't belong to the Israelite community. But they, there are people among them who acknowledged God. And we will be standing with them in that last day, worshipping God together. I think God can accept those who we think we shouldn't as well. We see this in how Jesus even related to people and who he accepted and who he offered forgiveness to. I mean, like the sinful woman, some of you might have read that recently in Luke chapter 7, who, who comes to Jesus and washes Jesus' feet. I mean, this woman, this sinful woman, is categorized in this idea that she was sinful. She was probably seen as the, a woman who was so far from God 
the least likely to be accepted by God. And she comes to Jesus in her brokenness. I mean, this is a woman who, who probably has prostituted herself to the men of her town, taking what is rightfully reserved relationship between a husband and wife. Maybe she's, she's been a thief, she's been deceitful, she stole from others, who wrecked homes. I mean, everybody in that town recognized that she was the epitome of sin. Yet, she comes broken. And she begins to weep and wash Jesus' feet with her tears and then wipe them with her hair. And then she begins to kiss his feet and she pours this ridiculously expensive perfume on Jesus' feet. About a year's worth of wages. And what does Jesus say to her? Get away from me. No. To the confusion and the disdain of the religious leaders who thought they were close to God. Jesus says to her, Your sins are forgiven. Every single thing that you have done wrong against God, your dishonor of God, every little thing has been forgiven. She came in her brokenness before Jesus. And she recognized and acknowledged Jesus for who he was and had faith in him. That he was the only way to be saved. And Jesus, she says to her, and looks at her and says, Go. Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. This lasting identity, belonging, and security are for those that recognize and acknowledge and follow God. My question to us is this. If you have accepted that, do you take this for granted? When was the last time that this truth brought you to your knees in prayer and repentance? Has this truth challenged you in that way? That for some reason God includes you. Because we don't deserve it. None of us. Myself included. When was the last time you recognized that and you broke down as a result of that? Or is Jesus just another thing you do on Sunday or on Wednesday? In this passage, it also challenges us to go out because it recognizes that God loves people that are distant. Who in your life is distant from God? Who still rejects God? 
that is still in this endless search for identity, belonging and security, but not finding it. Who in your networks are far from God? Maybe it's your family members who don't know him, to the friends that still reject him, or your neighbours in your street who don't have an opportunity to hear about him, but yet you are a faithful believer. To the 85% of Australia who still turn away from him, who make a mockery of Jesus. To the 4 million Berber in North Africa who live in ignorance to Christ. To the Sri Lankan ISIS members who don't deserve Christ. But yet God went to them too. To the 6 million Tibetans in China who bow every day to a false god. To the 750,000 deaf community in Vietnam who need followers of Christ to go to them with the words of eternal life, so that they might hear. Today, put into action, sharing the good news with your networks, with the people around you who are far from God. Maybe setting aside five minutes every day to pray. To pray for your networks. Setting another five minutes to, to pray for the world. To be deeply invested in that. You know, our church is desirous to send people to Vietnam. We've got people in East Asia and in North Africa. How much do you know about those countries and the need for the gospel there? And how are you invested in that, in prayer for them? I'm not telling you to pray for Kerry and Heidi. I want you to pray for North Africa. Because you are involved in that work. Because you, as, a, as us as a church, we are sending people to far off places so that the gospel might be present there. So where do we find our identity and our belonging and our security? It should be in God's city. In the hope of heaven. Where God is. And if we have faith in him, where we are. And that is the thing that drives us to go out. That drives us to go out and share with other people. Because if the God of the universe came for broken, distant, rebellious people like us, then he's gone to our neighbor and our friend our father, to the Berbers in North Africa. And you have the words of eternal life to share with them. This is a picture of Jim Elliot and his four other friends. And they were convicted that they were to go and reach a remote tribe in Ecuador with a news that would provide everlasting hope. The tribe that were in Ecuador, they were called the Alcas. They had been known for killing each other off and they were known for hostility towards outsiders. And every single person that had ventured into this Ecuadorian jungle, into their territory, did not come out alive. They were all speared to death. The Ecuadorian government had this plan that they would completely decimate this, this tribe because they were just causing too many problems, too many issues for their community. 
They're wanting to build an airstrip in the jungle. They're wanting to, to, to get oil. And so these this tribes people, they were stopping that from happening. So these five missionaries knew their time was limited to reach this tribe. So they hatched a plan. And they started to fly into the, over the jungle to see where the villagers were. And they, they started to drop presents down to them by rope to say, hey, we're friendly. We want to come and talk to you. They started learning some of the Alka phrases. And on January 3rd, 1956, they landed on a sandbank in the middle of Alka territory. These five missionaries, including Jim, Jim Elliot, And they started to get a megaphone. They screamed out into the bushes saying, yeah, we're, we're here. Hi, we're friendly. We want, we're friends of God. And we want you to hear. Two days later, as they, they kept doing this, two women and a man came out of the jungle. And they were so excited. First contact. And they started to talk to them with as much phrase as they could. They didn't, couldn't say very much. They ate with them. They drank with them. They even got the guy, the man, to, um, they got him in the plane, flew him over his village, and he tried to shout out to the villagers down below. It's like, hey, look, look, I'm up in the plane. I'm in the, I'm in the bee that's in the sky. Almost to the detriment of his life because he nearly fell out. Great first contact. They left. About three days later, the missionaries were still waiting. And then two women come out of the jungle. And so they run up to them excited. Yes, second contact. This is great. What they didn't realize was that behind those two women were the tribe ready with their spears. And they ran out and speared all five missionaries to death. That wasn't the end of the story, though. About six months later, some of the women, um, the wives of the husbands and and a sister of one of the, um, uh, of Nate Saint, they went back to that same village. Because they were convicted that their identity and their belonging and their security laid in heaven. And this tribe did not know. Within a few months and in the coming years, the whole tribe accepted Christ. And that tribe today exists. Because five missionaries... Jim Elliot, before he died, he wrote these words. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose.
he gave his life. That's indispensable. Because I have eternity. That's what we thought was. I have eternity with Christ. And these people don't. Where is your identity and belonging and security placed? Is it in God's heavenly place? Is it found there? Or are you just living for what is now? Do you recognize that God wants you to place everything there? He wants you to place your security in what is eternal and to devote your life to that. So that those that are far off might hear the news. Is your identity and security and belonging there? Let me pray.